Hello, this is Jason Gewertz, editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. It is, of course, an Olympic year, and we are delighted to be able to feature our guest for this episode, whose team will be competing against the world's best in Tokyo this summer, the CEO of USA Weightlifting, Phil Andrews. The national governing body is doing some fascinating things when it comes to preparing the U.S. team for competition, and our conversation will go into some of what's in store in the weeks and months ahead. But before we begin, This podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 will be held at the George R. Brown Convention Center in Houston, Texas, October 19th through the 22nd, 2020. And speaking of the Olympic movement, this year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink and NGB Best Practices seminars, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. You may not be aware of it, but the U.S. weightlifting team has been turning heads in international circles of late with their results in some of the sport's most prestigious competitions. The U.S. men, and especially the U.S. women, are coming off some of their best results in years. 2019 saw the team's best performance in nearly 30 years at the World Championships and its best performance in 20 years at the Pan Am Games. In 2016, the team ended a 16-year medal drought at the Rio Games and is expected to be on the podium again in 2020. To support those athletes, the national governing body has launched a fundraising campaign called Tokyo Strong that will include a gala event at New York's Grand Central Station in April. Uh, Money from the effort will also go toward rent for a private training facility in Tokyo for U.S. athletes, a unique move among national governing bodies. Uh, Success for the organization hasn't just come on the field of play, either. Uh, Several U.S. cities have hosted the sports world championships in recent years, and the NGB's event portfolio itself continues to grow. In this conversation, We'll talk to Phil Andrews about the organization's unique approach to Tokyo, the events that USA Weightlifting hosts, recent doping allegations that have been unearthed against some of the sport's international athletes, and what the organization looks for in a host city. There's a lot of ground to cover here, and we hope you enjoy this conversation with one of the Olympic movement's up-and-coming leaders. Phil Andrews, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, of course. It's it's great to have you on. It is, of course, an Olympic year, so there is uh, a lot happening uh, throughout all of the national governing bodies, but particularly at USA Weightlifting. And we're going to talk quite a bit about uh, a number of the initiatives that you have going on. But Phil, uh, you know, for our podcast, I always like to start a little bit with our guest's background and uh, in particular your background, because uh, your story of how you came to USA Weightlifting in 2013, shortly after the uh, the London Olympics, is an interesting one. So it kind of refresh my memory a little bit of how you even got to Colorado Springs and got involved with USA Weightlifting. Yeah, my uh, my strange life. Um, <laughs> so uh, as the accent gives away, and you know, I'm I'm a British American, and uh, the accent is somewhere half between the two. So I'm assuming at some point I've now become Icelandic. Um, <laughs> I, I hear a little Colorado in there, so something must be rubbing <laughs> off. Right, exactly. So so short background. I worked on uh, what's called the High Performance Training Center at the London Games, at uh, the London 2012 Olympics for Team USA. I was held at a place called the University of East London. And there uh, I met, uh, interestingly enough, my now wife, um, as well as obviously quite a lot of people from what is now the USOPC, then the USOC. And we had 31 other 
uh, clients during the games from Alidas, Asics, Team Singapore, Team GB, um, British Swimming, quite a lot of, of varied people, Locock as well, the organizing committee. It was a, a very interesting experience working on uh, what for me was a uh, hometown Olympic Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so long story short, I uh, moved over uh, after the games in a very, very, very early 2013, very early January, um, and uh, been here ever since. And, and when I did, uh, I asked a few people, hey, who needs some help? Who's a, who's a good NGB to join that's got a challenge to it uh, and has got some room to grow? And, and weightlifting was an answer to that question pretty regularly from, from a number of different people, including my own wife, um, mm-hmm. that it's a sport that presented an opportunity to really make a difference. Um, and at that time, CrossFit was just emerging. Um, so it was a good time to join uh, USA Weightlifting. I did a little bit of work uh, with some other national governing bodies throughout that time. Uh, and so joined USA Weightlifting. And really, that's uh, now been almost seven years. And uh, it's been a, a fun time uh, working through two quadrennials with the organization, first as our director of events and programs and and. And then um, uh, just after Christmas 2015, became our, our CEO. Right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, Phil. I think a lot of people may not realize you brought up the training center that the USOPC, then the, the U.S. Olympic Committee had in London. Um, I was fortunate to, to be at those games and I saw that uh, venue that you had on campus. It was a great venue. But I think a lot of people don't realize that oftentimes uh, Olympic committees, at least ones in the good fortune, like the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, they will often take out training centers uh, at the site of uh, major events like an Olympic Games for their own athletes to use and have a little more control over uh, everything from nutrition to uh, to training. And I know you were involved with that facility in London. And I think that's uh, not a terrible segue to what's happening um, in Tokyo, because I know at a broader level, the uh, USOPC plans a similar type of center. But Phil, USA Weightlifting is planning some similar things in, in Tokyo as far as your athletes. So you've got a campaign right now called Tokyo Strong. So walk me through a little bit about what that is and if all goes well, what you're hoping to do for your athletes in Tokyo. Yeah, it's the history of USA weightlifting is, is significant underperformance in the Olympic Games. Underperformance might be a little strong, but you know, we've here's where it's at. We last won a men's medal in uh, Los Angeles in 1984, and we last won a women's medal actually in Rio in 2016, and then before that, all the way back to 2000. So three medals in in 20 years for women, and uh, zero all the way back to 84 for the men. So. We, we really had a, a large increase in a lot of areas in our national governing body in our events, in our membership, uh, but also in the performance of our athletes. Our, our women have gone from being a fairly low-ranked team to being now the third best team in the world. But our men have also seen a significant increase in the way that they're ranked. So there's a lot of reasons behind that that perhaps might be a, a podcast for another time, so I can certainly spend hours on that. With that said, it's a unique opportunity for us in Tokyo to to have our best games in 60 years. Um, and we're really hoping to give our athletes every possible tool uh, to be able to do that. The USOPC, as you mentioned, they have their own training center, which deals with the lack of accreditation in the Olympic Games and being able to give an ultimate environment. Simple things like being able to train more than once a day. With Tokyo, um, the USOPC, uh, Team USA, uh, selected a site in, in Tokyo, which is a little bit out of town for us and, and wouldn't quite provide what we needed. So we were left with two choices. And by the way, they did that reasonably so. Um, we're 
we've historically not performed in the medals um, to the extent that they should prioritize us. And that makes sense. So we have to have two choices. Either we say, okay, fine, uh, we're going to stay where we are, or we go out there and raise money to do this the absolute right way for our athletes. And so we chose the latter and launched the Tokyo Strong Project, which uh, raised so far about a half million dollars to fund that facility and the associated services for athletes in Tokyo. Uh, that's more than we've raised, I believe, in our entire history. And we're very lucky that we've had some really great donors come and help us with that. Uh, and then we have our Tokyo Strong fundraising gala in New York City in April, which hopefully will finish off that fund very nicely and uh, perhaps even begin to look ahead towards Paris 2024, which we're already turning our heads to in, in terms of logistics planning. So Tokyo Strong's been a fun thing to pull together. We're looking at our best games in 60 years, and I think it's our responsibility as a national governing body to give our athletes every possible tool that they have to be able to perform for Team USA on the platform at the biggest moment of their lives. Right. So you're going to have your own training facility. What kind of venue are you are you planning there? So we've essentially rented a floor of a, a building in downtown Tokyo, obviously ground floor because it's weightlifting, which is an additional challenge um, where you know earthquake-proof buildings are built and you need to be sure to not shake the building for that reason in a, in yeah. a city like Tokyo. And obviously it's a downtown of a, one of the largest cities in the world and you know, spaces at a premium. So being able to use uh, an above ground floor will be very useful. We're not in that position. We have to have a ground floor. So... Ground floor, it really is. <laughs> uh, so we've we've rented that. It'll become a hospitality house as well for some of our sponsors and our donors. But it's going to be, a, I think, a, a good tool. Uh, it's the first time we've done it, but I do have some experience from London, and and some of my colleagues have some experience from from other similar operations. So we're hopeful we can pull it off in the way that's intended. And uh, ultimately, the the proof will be in, as one of our coaches put it, the work of the last four years for the entire organization, and and for me personally, is somewhat dictated by the results of 36 minutes of somebody else's lives. (laughs) No pressure there. Exactly right. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I know, Phil, that your fund is going to go toward as well is to help with the uh, travel components of some of your athletes. Give me an idea for uh, an NGB like USA Weightlifting, how difficult it is for your athletes to get around the world to all the events that they need to be at to compete at the elite level. Yeah, it's it's an enormous amount of money. Um, we're we're an NGB of about a medium size. We're just sh- just shy of thirty thousand members. We are ninety seven percent self funded. So in other words, only three percent of our funding comes from the USOPC, and I've outlined why, and it makes sense. That means that we're reliant on our coaching courses, our membership, our donors, and our events to bring in the money to fund those people. Um, along the way, we have the highest. Um, we believe the highest stipend program means the athlete earning per month of any national governing body. And we also offer a pretty high prize money packet uh, to those very, very top end elite athletes. It costs us about a million dollars plus roughly to fly the athletes around the world each year to junior worlds, youth worlds, senior worlds, Pan American championships. But then in the new Olympic qualification where you qualify by name, you've got to compete six times. So that requires flying to all sorts of corners of the world, all sorts of times. We've we've hosted a couple of Olympic qualifiers, this quad in the in the United States, which has been helpful to mitigating some of that. But you know, for example, as we speak, we have a team in Rome, Italy, 
competing. And within the next month, we'll have teams in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. We'll have teams in uh, Malta, uh, teams in Columbus, Ohio in the US, and one other, I believe, as well that I'm currently escaping my mind. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of ground to cover. It is. It's a lot of different places. It's it's an interesting challenge that we have to to balance all of that on a relatively small amount of athletes, relatively small amount of staff, relatively small amount of support. A lot of logistics, sure, and a lot of different situations. Yeah, you mentioned a number of events in there, Phil, and I want to ask you about quite a few of them. But before I get to that, uh, since, since we are talking about kind of this elite level right now of your athletes at USA Weightlifting, uh, weightlifting at the international level has been struggling for years with doping issues. Uh, I mean, it was just last May, the IOC said that the sport was finally back on the right track after there had been a real threat for it to be dropped from the Olympic Games. And yet, uh, as you know, there was a recent documentary out of Germany that's raised some new allegations, uh, not only of issues uh, within governance at the International Federation, but some fresh allegations of uh, potential doping among athletes you know, from several countries. Phil, what's your reaction to this latest round of developments? And, and what is USA Weightlifting doing when it comes to advocating for clean athletes? So uh, there's been some developments actually in, in as recently as the last week with, with that issue. Right now, as we sit here, the, the IWF executive board asked uh, Dr. Tamashayan, the president of the IWF, to step aside for a period of 90 days uh, and place. And that's uh, not insignificant, right? He's been there a long time. 44 or possibly 45 years. Um, interestingly enough, his first election was actually in the United States in Columbus in the early 70s. So he's he's been vice president and then general secretary, then president uh, for for a very very long time. It, it isn't insignificant. It's the first time that somebody has been in power, uh, if you like, uh, that's not Tamashayan in in about forty years. That is Ursula Garza Papandre. She's from uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, she was up until that moment our chair. Not that she was obliged to, but it was the right thing to resign her chairwomanship of USA Weightlifting to take up that role. Um, so she has 90 days, and she's heading a four-person commission. That commission will appoint an external investigator to look into the claims made by the German documentary. And, you know, first of all, look at, are these accurate? And if they are, what's the evidence that sits behind them, and what ought to be done about it? Uh, that will be an independent investigation that will have the full remit to report and do whatever it sees fit to to investigate you're right. On the other hand, between 2017 and 2019, and really to today, sport did a lot to clean up. Um, the there is a noticeable difference in the, if you want a better term, the doping culture in weightlifting uh, between the in this squad uh, between 2016 and today. An American named Rich Young led uh, the Clean Sport Commission, which was essentially put together the recommendations that led to a lot of those significant changes in the sport. Those were all good. That doesn't excuse anything that went before that, and those claims have got to be investigated. We can't necessarily right away assume they're all 100% true, but they have to all be investigated thoroughly. And a good report given to not just um, the executive board, but also to the public, to the International Olympic Committee, and to WADA. I think it's also an opportunity for the sport to really look at its governance structure. Uh, how can we better include athletes? How can we better include women in our structure? I think those are two interesting questions. But more importantly, even if these claims are not true, perhaps the bigger point is they could have occurred. And it's really important to take a look at our governance and our bylaws in the International Weightlifting Federation. 
and, and look at how we can put in place transparency and controls to ensure that these allegations couldn't happen in the future, even if these ones don't prove to be accurate or to have the veracity um, that perhaps is claimed in the documentary. And again, I'm not saying they don't. I'm simply saying that they need mm-hmm. to be investigated thoroughly by an independent third party that's not controlled by the IWF to ensure that, you know, frankly, they're either, yes, this happened, and we need to take uh, issue with those people responsible, including perhaps the president of the IWF, or they're not accurate. And right. there is no case to answer, as it were. Um, that is what we need to establish. But the more important point is, even if not, it could have happened. And that's a real issue. So let me shift a little bit to some events. You know, the U.S. has hosted a number of major international events just in the last couple of years. You've had the World Championships 2015 in Houston, 2017 in Anaheim. You had the Youth World Championships in Las Vegas last year. I saw that you're also stepping in to host the World Masters Championship this year in Orlando. And, uh, It's interesting, Phil, because I know there are a number of challenges with hosting these international events, not the least of which, you know, for your sport in particular is getting visas for athletes from countries, uh, several of whom are on various travel ban lists, which obviously proposes a challenge. And yet, you know, at the same time with 2028 coming and and, uh, a lot of international events kind of on the schedule for a number of governing bodies and federations here in the United States, it also seems like there's some opportunity there. But give me your take, Phil, on, uh, well, I guess for for starters, how challenging it is to organize some of these international events that we've seen here in the United States in weightlifting just the last couple of years. It's it's incredibly challenging. There's no hiding from that. We've we've we're very fortunate with the senior worlds. We have great partners in uh, the Houston Harris County Sports Commission and Sports Anaheim, who were really you know fundamental partners who we couldn't work without. On the youth worlds, we uh, had the Westgate Resort, who you know, very much helped us. Uh, with the room rates, with the food, that they were critical to be able to host the Youth Worlds. We've also hosted the Pan American Championships in Miami, the Youth Pan American, sorry, the Junior Pan American Championships in Reno, a bronze Olympic qualifier in Columbus, in San Diego, and Las Vegas, plus the Pan American Masters in Orlando, and now the uh, World Masters in Orlando. So yes, quite accurate. The visa issue is is a big one. That takes a lot of work and manpower. Uh, I look after that that issue personally and liaise with the USOBC's government relations team, who have a very, very good relationship with the State Department. The critical issue, honestly, is time. It is possible to get visas, but you need time to do it, and you need to work carefully through the process to do it. You know, a good example is a Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is uh, better known as North Korea. They came to the 2015 World Championships and there was no problem. But it did take time to to make sure they got their visas. Similarly, the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, they came to the 2017 World Championships and were very cooperative as a nation in, in the acquisition of their visas. They had to travel to Dubai to receive their visas. Uh, but they were able to get them and they did come here. They competed and actually they won the men's team world championship. It's a challenge. But it's one we're now used to, uh, one which the USOPC uh, government relations team has been incredibly helpful in, in removing barriers and being as helpful as they can. Can we guarantee a visa? No. But can we do everything in our power to make sure that you're well prepared uh, to go through the process? Yes, we can. And that's what it comes down to. 
I don't think that will be a big problem for the Los Angeles 2028 games. It, it is certainly a challenge in terms of the perception of the U.S. abroad when it comes to events coming to the U.S. But, you know, if you're looking to bring an event to the U.S., I would say just be prepared. That's all you need to do. Make sure you've got the right relationships in place. Make sure you've spoken to the right people in terms of, of our government. And uh, if you're an Olympic governing body, the USOPC's government relations team are the, are the people to go to for that. Uh, but it, it is possible to do. The Wrestling Federation here in the U.S. also hosted the 2015 World Championships in Las Vegas, and they have a similar demographic who they host. And I believe U.S. Fencing's hosting the World Juniors in um, in Salt Lake City, I believe it is, uh, I think next year or possibly this year. Uh, world Table Tennis is coming to Houston in, in a not-too-distant future, as is, I believe, World BMX. So there's, there's actually quite a few coming to the U.S., and, and I think it's just knowing how to deal with those visa issues is, is a big deal. Yeah, are those issues complicated enough, Phil, that they would discourage you from from bidding for future international events? Do you think there will be other opportunities in your sport, in particular, in the next couple of years? It's possible. Um, we've we we have taken a bit of a backseat from hosting world level events just now. We're going to concentrate our efforts on lower level Grand Prix, World Cup, uh, Olympic qualifiers, um, as well as the Pan American events. But it's not impossible that we will host a world event again. Uh, for us, uh, we are waiting to see what happens with some of these travel bans, whether they're lifted or not. Uh, it's not they can't be got around, but there is a perception of them overseas, which becomes a little bit of an issue for us in terms of making sure people feel comfortable with us hosting an event. However, that said, we we have had good luck with, um, with those countries being very supportive of us in uh, Las Vegas and in uh, Anaheim and in Houston, with one or two exceptions. We talked at the beginning, uh, Phil, obviously before you were CEO, your background with the organization was in events. Uh, USA Weightlifting does quite a few events just within the United States. Give me an idea uh, from your perspective, Phil, on what an ideal host city partner looks like for you uh, when USA Weightlifting is going out for your own events here in the United States. What's attractive to you? What begins the conversation for you guys with a potential host city? Specifically for international events, and to some extent, our domestic events, we, we look for a good airlift. I think that's the first and most important thing. Um, the second thing for international events really does come down to room rate. And in our country, what tends to be a killer is food. For most of the events at the World and Pan Am level, you have to provide uh, basically a 24-hour rate. So in other words, here's what you pay per person per day in a double room or a single room, but that includes your three meals. And, and actually, our issue in the United States with getting that cost to the right number is usually more about making sure the food can be provided in adequate fashion for that cost rather than the room rate. And that's part of the reason why Las Vegas has been so good for the youth worlds um, and uh, for some of uh, the Las Vegas International Open as well that was hosted there is because they already have the Las Vegas buffets. So they already have a setup that's almost ready made for that purpose. I think that's been a number one challenge in terms of cities being able to partner with uh, these types of events in weightlifting, at least because of that requirement, um, has been the, the ability to put the room rate and the food together as one one total overall rate is is a challenge. Not every sport has that challenge, but we do have it. And I think it's it's that's, that's probably number one. Number two is the airlift and transportation costs associated from the airport. Again, that price that they pay typically includes that transportation. So you've got to get that under a certain financial value for it to make sense. 
And we've approached that in a number of different ways. And then the third is obviously the venue and the room rates and the AV rates. Hosting a world championships is more of an undertaking. But some of the events, the Pan Ams is perhaps a good example. The production level is pretty similar to our national events. Um, and in fact, the youth worlds wasn't far off of our national events. And so therefore, putting together a weightlifting platform is sort of the same thing for our national events as it is for a world event. The difference is you person stepping on it is an international athlete versus a domestic athlete. Um, and so you know, beyond that, it becomes down to the usual venue, hotel, distances, that type of thing that we would typically consider in a, in a normal domestic event. And I'm sure each event di- differs a little bit, but what kind of venues are you able to use or do you uh, prefer to use for some of these events? Well, look, we're pretty lucky. We can, we can manage our layout relatively well to fit the layout of the venue. So essentially, you need roughly 10,000 square foot of space per platform in an ideal world. So if for a two-platform event, 20,000. For a three-platform event, 30,000 and so on. So you know, any convention center, any a lot of ho- larger hotel ballrooms uh, can work for us, um, which gives us a lot of flexibility on where we go. The hotel ballrooms are coming few and far between. Uh, you know, it needs a, a very large one to hold us generally, but it is still possible. Uh, we use one in Chicago in the Lombard area, West Inn, uh, for some of our smaller events. And we've we've used the, the World Center down in Orlando as a world-class ballroom set up. It's uh, and the Hilton Anatole in, in Dallas, just to name a few. Still possible, but it's becoming rarer. We tend to be in convention centers a lot. We're also open to unique venues. In fact, that is somewhat more attractive in a way. We were at the Graceland Soundstage uh, in Memphis uh, last May, which worked out very well for us. Tell me about that event. That, that was fun. It was. Uh, we stayed at the guest house opposite, and we had the, the soundstage for our event itself. It was just the right size for nationals, and you know, it provided a, a different experience of being at Graceland, being at Elvis Presley's place. It was, it was something different. It wasn't you know the average square box with a concrete floor. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it was just nice to take people somewhere a little bit different, somewhere more interesting. Union Station in St. Louis, which is actually a Doubletree Hotel, um, that's also a very unique experience. We had an event back in 2015 there. Those just provide a really nice visual and interesting backdrop to the event. Yeah, that's interesting. I imagine it takes a little bit of both, both a, a, a city or a destination that can think a little strategically with something unique. And obviously, it has to work on your end as well. Yeah, and for us, it's really, you know, does loading work well? Can we get the, the truck there? Can we get the weights unloaded well is, is a big deal for us. But, you know, what it really comes down to is can we get a, a good room rate for our attendees? Uh, can we get enough space to do the event? Does the finances work out and the logistics work out? So in other words, our athletes have got used to being able to walk between the hotel and the venue and uh, similarly decent uh, airport transportation and airlift because ultimately because we're so flexible on venue we can typically find that you know that said it's always good to get good uh, cvb and, and sports commission partners and we've been very lucky to have some really good ones over time and that doesn't always have to be the biggest cities you know we're talking about sports anaheim and houston harris county and and what they did for the worlds, but perhaps on a domestic level, I mentioned uh, Salt Lake City, uh, visit Salt Lake and Clay Parton over there, as well as uh, the West Michigan Sports Commission, Grand Rapids, Spokane Sports Commission, are really good ones, which go the extra mile to make sure the event goes well, which that's not to say other people don't, but those those three perhaps come to mind uh, right away, in, in a way some of the others uh, don't quite. 
Well, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, Phil, you mentioned a number of cities there. Give me an idea what your travel schedule is like, uh, especially in an Olympic year. Does that pick up for you or how often are you on the road? Very often. Um, with the different <laughs> roles that, that I occupy, um, both domestically and internationally, um, with our road shows, with the Golden Gala, I, I would say I'm on the road. January's been a little bit different. My wife had a, a significant uh, knee surgery, so I've been home for that. Uh, but from February until May, I'm not sure I'll complete both hands in a number of working days. I'm, I'm actually here in Colorado Springs. Um, hopefully after the games, that'll, that'll calm down a little bit. Uh, both of our domestic event schedule tends to be quite heavy early in the year. The international event schedule also tends to be relatively heavy early in the year. So I'm, I'm hoping towards the end of the year, things will calm down a little bit. But I'll tell you this, I've been here nearly, this is my seven, I guess, coming into my eighth year. And every year I've said, well, hopefully it's going to be a little bit quieter. And every year it turns out I've lied to my own face. <laughs> well, maybe that's a maybe that's a sign of growth and and uh, actually a good thing, uh, your travel notwithstanding. But, you know, I think as we've talked about, USA Weightlifting seems to be on a roll right now, Phil, both uh, with your events and obviously with your team's performance uh, at the elite level. So, you know, I wish you the best of luck in Tokyo. We'll be watching out for you and good luck with the facility over there and with everything in the weeks and months to come. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. And uh, as always, happy to, to speak and speak with anyone. Uh, my email is phil.andrews at usaweightlifting.org. And my number is 719-866-3386. Feel free to reach out. Perfect. Thanks so much for being here, Phil. No, you're welcome. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And for more content related to the sports event industry, be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com. Until then, this is Jason Gewertz for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.